I'm delighted to be joined today by Mairead McGuinness, EU Commissioner for Financial Services, Financial Stability and Capital Markets Union. Welcome, Commissioner. Delighted to join you, Arthur. Good to be with you. Now, your job includes preserving and improving financial stability, protecting savers and investors and ensuring the flow of capital where it is needed. In this discussion, we will look at green issues, we look at fintech developments, and we look at the financing of small and medium enterprises. But if we're going to go into that green question, it seems to me that there is the question of risk around financial stability when we talk about climate change. What in your assessment are those risks? And from your very important position in Brussels, what can you do about that? Well, look, financial stability is in the title of my role here, so it's key to everything that I do. What we're looking at uh, around this uh, transition towards a more sustainable future, particularly addressing climate change, but also environmental degradation and biodiversity loss. In the past, we wouldn't have seen the financial system and these issues in the same room. And that was the problem because we were only looking maybe at financial returns without taking into account the impact on the rest of the world uh, from companies and how they made profit. So today we're no, we know more, we know better, and we know that the financial system itself has to play a part in funding the transition. But equally to your point, the financial system is very vulnerable if it doesn't take account of risk due to climate change internally on the system. So what we are trying to measure with the ECB and with other regulatory bodies is the extent of those risks um, to the financial system from climate. Um, and there are many and there are varied. And of course, once you measure these risks, you have to take account of them. So we're asking the financial system, uh, including banks, to look at how they will be impacted by climate and then to make adjustments uh, to their portfolios to take account of those risks. And I think once we start looking at our systems more holistically, there will be better joined up thinking around the impact of money on societal issues, on the wider environment. And if you look at all of the conversations from COP26, we know that money matters in these conversations and that the role of the financial system in funding the transition is absolutely vital. We won't achieve our targets of climate neutrality or uh, reduced biodiversity loss and environmental uh, degradation without finance. If you look at the energy transition alone, it's an enormous task. It requires vast sums of money. So we need the financial system to provide those uh, elements of funding. And one of the things we're, we're, we're trying to do uh, with our corporate sustainability reporting directive, as an example, is a reach, rather reach a place, we hope soon, where financial returns and sustainability information are on a par so that investors can make sound and wise decisions about where they're putting either their own money or the money of citizens where they're investing in. And equally, they we're asking the financial system, the banks, to report on their portfolio to see how much of their portfolio is being invested in a more sustainable way. At the very heart of this, of course, is this EU taxonomy, which is, if you like, a rule book uh, for each sector as to what would constitute sustainability. Uh, Europe is more advanced than other parts of the world. It's a very complicated, difficult process. Uh, we already have what we call a draft delegated act with the co-legislators. The European Parliament has approved it. 
next week we await the verdict of the council. And should this delegated act, as we call it, on climate go through, it will cover 80% of emissions in Europe. So the sectors covered in this delegated act emit 80% of emissions. The idea is that the financial system will look at our you know, technical screening criteria and look at industries they're investing in and fund the transition. Equally for companies like aluminium or the construction sector, they can use this as a guidebook to move from where they are today towards a more sustainable path. And they can present these management plans to banks and other uh, financial investors so that they will be able to fund that. So money at the heart of the transition and the financial stability of the system itself at risk if we don't address uh, the internal challenges. This is about public intervention on your part uh, at the European level, but also at nas national level. But what are, what are the limits of public intervention and where, where does public intervention stop and where does the role of private enterprise come in in this very long and very significant transition? Well, I wish we'd started years ago because the pressure would not be as great as it is today. And I think that's one of the problems we all face uh, for, to get the system to readjust in a timely manner. If you look at the target of a reduction of 55% of emissions in less than nine years, this is what Europe has set in law, then we face an enormous challenge to accelerate the pace of change. When you look at policy, um, both public and private, I think it's the, the, you know, the duty of the Commission with the co-legislators to set policy, so to give guidance to the system, the corporate world, SMEs, the financial system, as to the direction of travel, and that's very clear. To some extent, it's so clear, you would hope that people who haven't adjusted would begin to look at the green light and move towards it, because we've said climate neutrality by 2050, so everyone has to participate in this change. You ask rightly about the role of the private sector here, and I see this as, as uh, two you know, sides of the one coin. Private money will be essential to guarantee this transition. So the, you know, the investment funds, the pension funds that are investing today, um, I hope will continue to invest and in a more sustainable way. That will help us fund this transition. And I think that's absolutely key. The private corporate world, the, the world of uh, everyday life, of industry, of manufacturing, of services, need to look at how they function today, their supply chains, the sustainability of those supply chains and address deficiencies so that they can become more sustainable. So in a way, I think companies that aren't talking about sustainability are in trouble. Whether you're large or small, this word is the key word, but it needs actions. And if you look at companies in Ireland and elsewhere, whether in the agriculture sector or construction or manufacturing or services, they are looking at sustainability. They're employing specialists in this area. They're drafting plans to make sure that they're part of this change. And the reason they're doing it is obviously for their long-term survival, but it's also because many companies are part of the supply chain of others. And the big are asking the small, the, sm the, the medium are asking the small, the small are asking the micro. So there is a ripple effect here in supply chains. And if I could give an example of what happened with Brexit, uh, when that referendum happened uh, in 2016, it seems such a long time ago now and we're still talking about it. But the Irish government in particular decided that it would act immediately and say to companies, check your supply chain for vulnerabilities around Brexit. 
My message on climate and sustainability is the very same. Check your supply chain for vulnerability around climate and other environmental issues, which we will be dealing with in the taxonomy in the future, and take action to address them because the time is now. It's very pressing. And therefore, you know, the public and private working together will be essential. But the, the bottom line is, even with Next Generation EU, which is a very big plan, and uh, member states are getting financed uh, for all these uh, investments that are so essential, even with public money coming from the national purse of member states, it's not enough. Private funding will be absolutely crucial to our transition, including the digital transition, which is another piece of this complex jigsaw. How much money are we talking about, Commissioner, in the wake of the COP26 summit only a couple of weeks ago? Well, there are various figures, and to some extent, I think the figures mask really the discussion we need around what implications it will have for people. But we're talking about billions here for the energy sector alone. If my memory serves me well, it's 350 billion euros per year of additional funding for the transition of the energy sector up to 2030. So you're talking about a lot of money. And we want it now, and it's to deal with this first target of a reduction of 55%. So it is vast, and it isn't only the energy sector that needs to make the changes. I think it's also important to say that while the investment is large, the opportunities that come from this investment are enormous too, and the efficiency gains we can make, and the wider societal benefits. Because if you, you know, I recall, and maybe you're not as old as I am, but I remember a time in Dublin when smoky coal prevailed. And I remember getting really bad bronchitis from walking in the smog for about half an hour. And then um, a minister, to give her credit, Mary Harney, banned smoky coal in Dublin and in other cities. And it cleaned the air and it helped people's health because I was lucky I was young and healthy, but there are many people who've health problems which are exacerbated by pollution. So you see not just the financial return from these investments, you see us tackling, you know, societal issues like better quality air, which gives rise to better quality health. One of the issues we maybe should mention in all of this talk about money and volumes and technical issues there's a big political issue here, which, you know, I, I think I, I raise all the time because I'm acutely aware of the sensitivities. We talk about leaving no one behind. We need to bring people with us on this transition. If you talk in general, people want us to be more climate friendly. They want environmental issues addressed. Where it becomes very difficult politically and in member states on the ground for those who are in politics is actually explaining what this impact is on people. So we saw in Ireland the peace sector where workers lose their job because we know that we need not to um, harvest more peat, we shouldn't use it for energy production and indeed we're talking about re-wetting peatlands which is such a dramatic change from the time when we were giving farmers grants to drain peatlands and, and what I'm saying here is that we have come full circle in some areas and if we don't explain uh, to people the how and the why, and I, I, I would really stress that if we don't bring people with us on this journey and deliver on this idea of leaving no one behind, there will be societal kickback. Look at what's happening around energy pricing today. Families are being affected. Businesses are being affected because of the energy price increase. And yet one component of that, a small compo component, is carbon pricing, which we need to put in place so that there is a change 
uh, of behavior amongst all of us because of the impact of, um, of carbon pricing. So it's a complex uh, area which requires finance, technical issues, but deeply and more importantly is a conversation at ground level where the impacts will be felt and to make sure that we answer all of the concerns and worries while looking at the bigger prize, which is a more sustainable economy and society. Sure, the, the sums of money that you mentioned, they're eye-popping, truly. Mm -hmm. How can we ensure as that kind of money is spent on what can be termed a green agenda, that the substance follows, that the money goes into the actual things that are needed to be done to realize these very demanding aims. There must be a risk that the funding will be used as a kind of a flag of convenience for people to evade their responsibilities and to say that they are actually meeting their responsibilities when the progress is not going to be made. How okay. can you prevent greenwashing? Yeah, I mean, that's the key. And everyone's talking about this issue. Let me just say that you mentioned the funds are, are, are just extraordinary. And, and, you know, they are. Uh, but remember, there's an extraordinary amount of funding going into what is not sustainable at the moment. So if we manage to um, diverge, uh, if you like, and move investments towards what is more sustainable, there is that money there in any event. You, to your point about how do we avoid greenwashing? Here's the challenge for all of us. So we have a taxonomy that identifies what's green and therefore lots of people want to invest in what's green today. And that's very right and appropriate. But of course, the biggest change will come from investing in what's not green and moving it towards this more sustainable uh, end point. Uh, and that for me is, is how we unlock capital and get it moving in that direction. On the issue of how you then police the system, because you know, on the financial side, we have accountants and auditors who police the, the money side of the, the balance sheet, uh, and that there are checks and balances there. One of the things that we are working on with the Parliament and, and the Council is our proposal on corporate sustainability reporting. And part of that proposal is just not about what will have to be reported, but how it will be checked. Uh, and really, there's a body of expertise that needs to be built up because we're not talking about financial auditors. We're talking about auditors who can audit sustainability. So we will have, um, if you like, a tool where not only will people see what companies are reporting, but they will also be able to see that it has been, if you like, accounted for and checked. Now, these things will take time to put in place. So, uh, you know, I don't expect perfection from day one. Um, I would like to see it, but I'm a realist, but I do expect progress towards perfection so that we eliminate risks of greenwashing. The other thing that I think is perhaps as important, we've had a lot of public protests, young people, various NGOs protesting for decades about climate action. Many of those are now going into companies, they're shareholders, some of them are on boards. To me, that's where the fundamental change will come from, the inside, where companies, whether they're um, in the financial or non-financial sector, will have the pressure internally to change and work towards more sustainable um, activities. And therefore, there is pressure both from internal and external. And the policy signals at European level are very, very clear. And that those who are greenwashing will be called out. Called out internally and called out externally. Mm -hmm. Commissioner, this is a, this is a very long-term project. You were in your role until 2024. 
how, how far down this road will we be by the time your mandate ends? Well, I think we're in a very, uh, at the moment, an interim, a, a place where companies, uh, whether you're large or small, are a little bit anxious. I talk to them all the time because they're afraid of what's coming in terms of this new sustainability agenda and the reporting and what it might mean. So I'm trying to settle some nerves here and say, look, this is for uh, the long-term interest of you as a company so that you survive. And what we're trying to do is make this transition less difficult and less traumatic, but also to say very clearly, we don't have a choice because we have made commitments in law, that, excuse me, that have got to be addressed and they've got to be addressed <clears throat> sooner rather than later. So that's the first point around the change that will happen. We're going to introduce these reporting requirements gradually. So by the time of 2024, you will see this happening. We also have, a, I, re, I think, an excellent proposal on a European single access point. It's, it's new. Um, we just announced it last week, so it won't happen you know, overnight. It will happen over time where we will have a single access point where companies will report both financial and sustainability information. We'll channel and get that information that exists already on the financial side through the national competent authorities, but it will be a one-stop shop where you get all of this access to information. But it will also be, uh, if you like, a showcase for companies to, to you know, show what they're doing around their returns and their sustainability returns so investors can see it. So while I don't think there will everything will be completed by 2024, a lot will be set. So in, in other words, the, the stage will be set. We may tweak with some of the uh, instruments along the way, whoever comes into this role next. But I think what's most interesting, because I come from the European Parliament, I voted for this taxonomy regulation as a member of the European Parliament. When I moved to the Commission to this area of financial stability, capital markets union, traditionally, this D, uh, DG, FISMA as it's called, wasn't front and center. It's more technical, you know, for the financial system. Today, it's front and center because money matters. And the role of my services and colleagues in the cabinet here around delivering on the Green Deal is absolutely pivotal. You know, money does make the world go around. And to some extent, the money has made it go around in the wrong direction. We need to reverse engines immediately with no emissions in those engines to make sure that we have a more sustainable future. Notwithstanding, it is a big challenge and a huge change. But I think if we get people thinking not just about the financial side of their uh, balance sheet or their profit and loss, but also the medium long term around sustainability. And also, you know, when you look at your supply chain, when I look at how I work here or did in the European Parliament, there's ways of working better, more efficiently. Uh, that deliver better. So it's always good to challenge the way we function today. It'd be nice to do it when we're not under pressure. The truth is we're under enormous pressure. And in, in, in Europe, we are luckier than most parts of the globe. We have the resources to do this. this. To some extent, we have a duty because we have benefited from investing in fossil, uh, in oil. We still use lots of it. We've built economies. Uh, we've profited from it. Uh, and we do have to show leadership, which we're doing globally with our international platform on sustainable finance. We're working really well with the US, with Japan, with the UK, who are all part of this movement. And what we'd like to see are global standards. This would be the ultimate, uh, but we would think that the global standards, if they come and when they come, should be a baseline 
not a ceiling on ambition because we will move further and faster in Europe. And I think we will show the right level of leadership uh, and continue to do that. So whoever takes this job next, I hope will continue in that vein. All of this is taking place amid extraordinary technological advances, which have literally changed the way in which banking operates, changed the way in which financial markets operate. Uh, how does the development of fintech dovetail with this green revolution? Well, look, you're, you're right in saying that the, the level of change is dramatic. And I think our public health crisis with COVID has accelerated the rate of change. Fintechs were there, obviously, pre-COVID, but the use of technology by all of us um, really has advanced at rapid pace. I'm thinking in terms of our banks. In Ireland, for example, you see people not going to branches because they were closed due to COVID and now branches have been closed, people are moving online. What's interesting around the fintech sector is its innovative capacity. Um, but that was facilitated by policies already in place here so that um, we, uh, we, we asked for access to information uh, and anonymized information from the banking sector so that it could be used for others to provide innovative services to customers. I always look at the difference in our household between my uh, children that are now adults, young adults, uh, and the older pair, if you like. And you have a generation that have never really gone to a physical bank. You have a generation who are more familiar with cryptocurrencies uh, than a, a previous one would ever have thought. Uh, they are, apps are being used widely uh, to invest, but also to access services or pay meal bills, as I'm learning. So we have already a generation that are used to technology. There are many, many really you know, innovative uh, entrepreneurs on the fintech side. I suppose, you know, there's a challenge and a huge opportunity here. If you can get better services for customers that work more rapidly, instant payments, other things like this, this is really, really positive. Uh, there's also a challenge for the traditional financial system, the banks, for example. They are seeing parts of their um, full package being pulled apart a little by fintechs who are providing some of the services that traditional banks would have provided. And therefore there is a challenge and an opportunity for the traditional banking system to respond. Um, and, and how they do that will determine their future. So what, how, what services can they offer online? The amount of investment needed to um, digitalize more than we already are is enormous for traditional banks and indeed fintechs are in this zone as well. Uh, and equally on cybersecurity, you know, this is crucial. The financial system is the sector that gets the most uh, hits when it comes to cyber attacks. And, you know, it could destabilize uh, financial stability very quickly if it were of an extreme nature. So constant work on cybersecurity is important. We are working again with uh, our proposal on, um, you know, cybersecurity with the Parliament and Council. We're also looking at cryptocurrencies and trying to put in place appropriate regulation there, looking at DLT technology as to how it might be used to actually do financial transactions. And I think we're going to see a very different financial system and landscape in a short few years. So I think change is going to happen more dramatically. And it's one of the reasons why next year I will be leading a conversation about what will the financial system look like uh, in five to 10 years time? What are the issues that will impact 
all of the changes and we've just discussed some of them uh, and where are both the opportunities and the risks in all of that and at the moment if you look at what's happening around crypto assets around tokenized you know people buying pieces of art buying pieces of property now uh, using all of these technologies um, we need to think differently about how we regulate and I think one of the challenges for regulators and supervisors is keeping up to speed with the technology, understanding its complications and challenges, including around anti-money laundering, because we've just launched quite a big package to try and really tackle money laundering at source, because what we've done to date has helped a little, but not sufficiently. And we've discovered that, you know, allowing member states to do most of this work without European coordination just doesn't work. So we will have a, an anti-money laundering authority taking into account all of these uh, new things that are happening around technology that are moving at lightning speed. And what we need to be, I suppose, is fit for purpose and ready and be able to change regulation where that's absolutely necessary. Our time is running away, but we're running away on us. However, we have talked about these vast, vast billions that are that are, that are required to facilitate this green transition, this green revolution. We've talked about fintech, but there is also the question of financing small and medium enterprises. It's very difficult for a small business, which essentially is firefighting day by day, to uh, imagine the strategic leap forward that are needed. While they, while they might be able to imagine that what is required, they might not have the money or the capacity to get the money. How can we improve the access to capital that small enterprise needs to make these big transitions itself? Yeah, look, SMEs are at the heart of the European economy. So a lot of the work we do here is trying to address that very question that you put to me. Traditionally, SMEs rely on bank finance, and we're trying to, if you like, move away from that, even, to, you know, for the SME sector itself to change how it looks at uh, its sources of funding, um, because as I say, it's now banks mainly, and to the credit of the banking system going into this COVID crisis, they were able to continue financing our SMEs and indeed helped channel a lot of the public supports towards our SMEs and citizens. So, you know, that, that, that was a really important piece of the conversation and that arose because we regulated the bank better, they were better capitalized. So it's good to see that what was done after that awful financial crash has had good uh, implications today. One of the things, for example, we're looking at for next year is if an SME goes to a bank and doesn't get access to finance, uh, we're looking at should the bank be required to uh, refer onwards to other potential sources of money. So I think that's, you know, one that's an important part of the conversation so that they're not frozen out of getting access to cash. We're also looking at uh, the creation of an, uh, an SME um, IPO fund. So a fund that would if you like, help the SME sector to get listed. We're also looking at the complications around being listed uh, on stock exchanges. So, so there's a lot of work, incremental pieces of work that will broaden the scope of capital, access to capital for the SME sector. And I think that the more we build our capital markets, and we had a package recently about deepening the capital markets union, um, you know, the more we will have better options for finance uh, for the SME sector. Sector. Because if SMEs are the backbone of our economy, then we, we want to strengthen them and not weaken them. And at the moment, uh, we differ significantly from what happens in the US by not having a capital markets union. So we have many uh, European capital markets. It's fragmented. Uh, there are barriers. We're trying to break down those barriers. 
Some work has been done by others who held this post. I'm picking up that mantle now and working towards further work in this area so that we have more cross-border movement of capital. And maybe to go to the point of our um, European single access point for information about companies, which will be open to SMEs who would want to join so that it becomes a source of information for investors to see and spot maybe um, fintechs and others that they would like to invest in so that they can develop their business further. So we're acutely aware of the need to diversify the, um, the sources of capital for the SME sector. Uh, there are already proposals in play, but a lot will happen in, in 2022 around this issue, and rightly so, because we do want to continue that idea of SMEs being important for Europe, not just big corporates, but we do want to make sure that when they are looking for capital, that they have options. Commissioner, there's clearly a huge body of work going on, and a lot of people out there might think that there's simply Brexit going on in Brussels. By, by way of a parting word, from where you sit today, do you see any sign of a breakthrough in these very difficult and very complex talks over the future of the protocol? Um, I suppose I have to be optimistic that we will have that breakthrough. Um, on the other hand, if I'm logical and I think back to 2026 and we're now approaching 2022 and things are not resolved, you would question your um, optimism and your mindset. Uh, what keeps me hopeful is that we have a very experienced and able colleague in Vice President Maros Shevkovic, who's leading these discussions on the, the protocol with the UK. Um, and he has, you know, really worked very hard to answer the concerns that businesses in Northern Ireland have raised. It's been interesting to listen to business as opposed to politics. Business are solution oriented. The Commission is solution oriented. We'd love the UK to be in the same space. We believe by example, they might follow us, uh, but we're equally determined that where we can act in a way to solve the issues, including around supply of medicines, we may have to do that on our own because it's the right thing to do. But the better thing to do would be for the UK to join with us. To some extent, Brexit is still a battle and it shouldn't be. We fully accepted it. It's not the only issue on our agenda here. Frankly, there are so many and many grave issues. It is certainly one, but it's just one. Uh, I think for the UK, it remains front and center of everything they do, almost in a way uh, as if they're trying to convince themselves that the right decision was made. We've gone way beyond that. Fully respecting it has happened. Uh, fully committed to addressing the challenges that Brexit created for Northern Ireland, of us understanding the importance of the Good Friday Agreement, no hard border, but answering the practical problems for business. So my parting word would be, let business voices be fully heard and drown out some of the political voices, which perhaps need to be tempered a little. One final question, Commissioner. There's a report overnight about an intervention on the part of the US government regarding steel tariffs and the UK. How big is that? And does it have potential to move the dial in terms of this very difficult negotiation? I think broadly, we have had strong support from the US side, uh, and we welcome that, uh, that this protocol is implemented, that you know you, Europe and the United Kingdom have agreed something that they need to fully implement and deal with the practical uh, issues. If that is impacting on other aspects of US-UK relationships, I can't really comment on that. But what I can say is that 
it is very welcome and important that the US understand the difficulties that Brexit has created for Northern Ireland. This did not exist before that referendum. There were no borders, there were no barriers, there were no obstructions to trade or indeed uh, be between peoples. Brexit created borders, barriers, and indeed erected difficulties between people, which had faded because of uh, the European Union and all of us being members. Um, so, you know, maybe this is uh, the working out of the US engagement on this issue. And I hope that it has the desired effect that the UK understands that we have to work together collectively. We have a shared interest in solving this problem. We should have no interest in making it prolong itself into another year. I mean, frankly, I hope you and I aren't back next year. I hope we're alive, but I hope we're not back discussing Brexit again and being in the same position because it is quite shocking to think that we thought I think last Christmas Eve this was done life would move on we have all our agreements in place but clearly you know everything has not been implemented as it should have been and that's on the UK side we have fully done uh, what we signed up to and will continue to honour those international commitments. Yes. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you indeed good to be with you.